0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Hourline Starts podcast. the queue with Anson Carter. Our guest today, Rangers head coach David Quinn. You just saw a video of Artemi Panarin, the multi-talented Artemi Panarin. He can score. He can assist. He can build a birdhouse. He can paint shirtless with the leg kicks. We're going to talk all about how versatile and dynamic a weapon he is, clearly on and off the ice. But this got me thinking. I'm... I'm Constantly interested, considering everything that is happening right now with hockey on pause, David, how exactly are people filling the time? Take me through. What is a day in the life for the head coach of the New York Rangers right now?
1: Well, it's not overly exciting. I'll tell you that right now. It's, uh, you know, obviously it's you're, you're trying to find things to do to stay sharp during this difficult time. And obviously the number one thing is making sure everybody's safe and healthy. Not only uh, within our household, but obviously, uh, you know, protecting other people by doing the right thing, by social distancing and things like that. So, but, you know, it's funny, you know, you talk, we talk a lot as a staff and I talk to Jeff Gordon and Chris Drury almost daily. And, you know, I'm a little bit involved in the scouting stuff and preparing for the draft. But, you know, we've done some exercises with our team, trying to dig deeper, maybe a little bit to find out maybe some of the things we might be able to do better when we do come back. Uh, Maybe some trends that we weren't able to kind of discover during the course of the season. Uh, But again, at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do. There's only so much video you can watch. There's only so much you can dig deeper, Uh, staying in touch with the players, making sure they're staying uh, ready uh, if we do get going again. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, obviously the the number one thing is make sure we're doing our part and making sure that we're able to recover from this quicker than than we all, as quick as possible.
2: Okay, it's time to commit. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
3: Coach, all the players have their different training regimens these days. Seems like everyone has their own personal trainers. Uh, do you guys as an organization have set guidelines for your players right now, what they need to be doing training-wise to try to stay ready? If we do resume playing anytime soon?
1: Yeah, strength coach Jamie Rodriguez has done a great job. You know, obviously, uh, every player has access to different things. There's only so much. uh, You know, they can't go to gyms. Uh, Certain guys do have enough stuff in their house that they're able to maintain a pretty serious training regimen. Some guys are limited. So, you know, one of the things Jamie has done is he's tailored each workout to whatever guys have access to. Uh, The thing that we've really touched on lately is the fact that if we do start up again, Uh, The strength and conditioning is obviously a key component to all of this, but also making sure guys aren't putting themselves in a position where they're vulnerable to injury. And, you know, so we've kind of done a few things from videos where from a stretching standpoint for the hips and the groins, make sure that they're making sure that that they're staying stable and strong. We've actually sent every player a slide board. You know, a lot of guys don't have – nobody has access to ice right now, so we want to do something where they can emulate the skating stride which we think will put them in a, less, in a position where they'll be less susceptible to injury. So, you know, we, we feel like we're doing all we can to put our guys in the best position possible when we do start up again to hit the ground running.
0: Yeah, you want you guys to be able to react quickly and if this gets back, be able to adjust to playing again. You, you know, so <coughs> let's face it, was one of the most fascinating teams in the league when we hit the pause button on hockey. You have that run where you won nine of ten, cooled off a little bit, but you look at your team right now, Two points out, a dozen games to go. You had a couple players there, in Mika Jed, and Artemi Panarin, who I think made second-half pushes to put themselves really in the MVP conversation. How would you assess this season?
1: You know, our season was uh, one of uncertainty when it started. They're just We just weren't sure what we had. There were so many new faces. There were so many new pieces. And we were young. We were very young. And – you know, but I think internally there was a lot of optimism. You know, we knew we had a good core coming back. We thought the pieces that we added were going to supplement the core we had coming back. But as, as Anson, as you know, at the end of the day, it's about creating a bond and a team. Just because you have the same jersey on doesn't mean you're a true teammate. And I think you got to go through some adversity. You've got to experience the highs and lows of a hockey season. And, you know, early on in the season, I just didn't think anybody was sure how good we could be. And I'm, I'm talking about the guys in the locker room. And I think as the season progressed – I think guys started looking around and go, well, he's pretty good. Well, he's better than I thought. And then as the season evolved, we gained this confidence in each other and ourselves that, you know, we're a pretty good hockey team. And, you know, we were hovering around 500 right around the new year. But, you know, there was this belief internally that, you know, we were going to make a push. And, you know, you touched on Panarin and Nika, two guys that, to me, you know, our organization is so fortunate to have two stars like that that approach the game the way they do, have the work ethic the way they do, the type of teammates they are. I think it get dead on, Liam. I mean, those two guys certainly put themselves in the MVP conversation. And with every point being so crucial, Coach,
3: do you ever think where you guys could be without Mika if he didn't get hurt to start the regular season off? Because he was one of the best players in the National Hockey League right out the gate with Panarin. That duo that they formed, the chemistry they had, automatically was unreal. But then he got hurt, and uh, it set you guys back a little bit.
1: You know, it did set us back. Uh, but one of the things I thought that did, I thought it allowed other players to kind of step up. And ironically, I think we went 8-4-2 without Mika. And, we, you know, every time we'd win, he'd say, hey, you sure you want me back? And I'd like yeah, damn, what <laughs> I do? I want you back. <laughs> but it really gave, like I said, it gave our, some of our players a chance to step up. And, you know, like Phil Heedle, we called Phil Heedle up, and all of a sudden Phil Heedle, who did a heck of a job down at Hartford when we sent him down, all of a sudden he played with a new level of confidence. When we did call him up, we put him in a situation, or he put himself in a position where he's playing big minutes, And took advantage of it. So I thought, and then after Mika came back, you know, Hedo becomes our third-line center and did a really good job. So, you know, it might have been a little bit of a blessing in disguise losing Mika because, like, you know, as I touched on earlier, there was that uncertainty of how good we could be. And I thought it maybe gave gave a bunch of guys an opportunity to do things maybe they weren't going to be able to do. And I thought it really, in a funny way, it might have helped us more than hurt us.
0: Mm. You've been around the game a long time. You've played with coached some great players I look at time to be you yeah jack eichel obviously there when you look at artemi panarin in your view does he compare closely to anyone you can remember or is he just a, is he a truly unique talent
1: he's a unique talent and the thing that's so unique about him number one he's sneaky strong i mean you look at him and he's not very big but boy he's got great hockey strength and i don't know if you guys saw the overtime goal that mika scored in uh, against the islanders right before the break I mean, literally, you know, Panarin gets that partial breakaway. He's got three Islanders all over him, and it was all strength. He all muscled all of them, and it was more hand-and-stick strength. It's not the body – you know, obviously, he's not a big guy, so it's not the body-on-body strength. It's his hand-and-stick strength, and he wins that battle, gets it to Mika, goal. But, you know, on top of the physical, you know, strengths that he has in his, his skill set, it's his mental skill set. I mean, this guy, you know, when you combine the physical talent that he has with his hockey IQ, you have a special player. And, you know, not only that, like I mentioned earlier, on top of the passion that he plays with, the jubilation that you see on the ice, is the same happy guy that we see daily off the ice and during practice, even when he's, you know, begging me not to have a practice. He does practice hard and he practices with joy. Uh, we're just very fortunate to have him. Coach, I just think I want to transition a
3: little bit because you talked about the faces of the team going through <laughs> in Mika and, and Artemi. I want to talk about a guy like the King, Henrik Lundqvist, uh, being the third string goaltender. How tough has that been, or has it been made easier? Because Hank has been such a pro in the locker room, having three netminders, and the guy that's done so much for the Rangers organization and New York as a city as a whole, um, you know, not play as much as I'm sure he's liked to play near the end of his career.
1: Obviously, you touched on it, and he's handled it unbelievably. And it really was, as I said before, and he and I had I've had conversations, obviously, a lot of them. During this time, when you have three goalies, it was a unique situation. And as I said to Hank, you know, I can't Google how do you handle three goalies, one being an NHL Hall of Famer, get a blueprint answer on how to handle the whole situation. But you know, one of the things that happened when all three of these guys started together was it was almost a little bit like a competition where you just let it play out. And as you know, I've touched on with all three of the goalies, Igor seemed to separate himself during that time where all three of those guys were together. And You know, Hank is so used to playing so often and so much that this is the next stage in his career where he's not going to be playing as much as he's used to. And that's just the evolution of a career. And, you know, I think there's an adjustment period for everybody. And there was a stretch, too. Igor got hurt, and then we played the Islanders three games out of six. And Georgiev had had such success against the Islanders that he was the guy that was going to play against the Islanders. So it even looked a little bit worse than maybe it was. And, you know, it was was more – a lot of things fell in line where there was a long stretch where Hank didn't play a lot. But at the end of the day, you know, when the three guys got together, Igor seemed to be the one to separate himself a little bit more than, than the other two. And that's just how the whole thing unfolded. But, you know, we've been very fortunate. All three of these guys have handled the hard situation very, very professionally. No more so than Hank.
0: How is Lundqvist with the younger goalies?
1: Very good. I mean, you just watch him during the course of games. And the thing I loved, he was very involved you know, during the course uh, right before we ended up and you know, before the season uh, came to a halt, you know, he was very involved, talking to the goalies, talking to guys in between periods, um, you know, you know, a true teammate.
3: You talked about not being able to Google how to handle a potential Hall of Fame netminder. You coached and had a lot of success at BU in Boston. (laughs) Right in the backyard is one of the probably the greatest coach in professional sports history and Bill Belichick. Is there any sort of lessons you learned from watching him from afar and how he handled his guys, how you've applied to coaching the National Hockey League so far?
1: Yeah, I think all coaches try to learn from everybody regardless of the sport they coach. At the end of the day, there's a lot of similarities to coaching regardless of the sport. You know, you're managing people, you're managing uh, you're managing benches, you're managing game situations. And, you know, football and hockey are very different uh, with the contract situation, right? They've got the, you know, they don't have a guaranteed contract. So... But the thing that you, t- you just, you know, when you when you're in the New England area and you and you're following the Patriots and you just the professionalism, uh, the accountability piece, uh, day in and day out, you come with a workmanlike mentality, um, no shortcuts. I mean, and there's a consistency to what he does day in and day out, and I think, you know, obviously I try to emulate that. I think all coaches do try to emulate the way he approaches it, just because of the success he's had and. You know, the thing that I think people don't realize, there is a human element to him that people don't see a lot because you see the scruffy, you know, Belichick, but uh, you talk to guys that have played from, him, he does have that personal side and there is a sense of humor to him, although we don't see it very often. But, you know, to be around New England during that stretch, when and during the stretch that they're still going through, obviously, it's been during a little bit of transition, it was just a lot of fun to be around and, you know, you think about the success they have it's just unmatched in sports.
0: Well, I think this interview's gone on like close to ten minutes. I've interviewed Bill Belichick. This interview is already nine minutes fifty seconds long. <laughs> not that that one was bad. That one was fine. Exactly, concise. <laughs> uh, the, the information he passed it on. And we on our separate ways. But, right. uh, you have to take things away from different coaches along the way. Uh, you obviously coached it. Be you took over for a legend, your former coach in Jack Parker. How do you step into a situation like that, and what advice did he give you?
1: Well, you know, when you step in for Jack, there's an awful lot of pressure. You know, the, in the hockey world, the BU job is, is one of the top five jobs in all of college hockey. And, um, you know, I was so fortunate not only to play for Jack, but to coach under him. I was his associate head coach for five years. And it was just amazing to watch. You know, I played for him from 84 to 87, and then I went back to work for him in 2004. That's a lot of time. And it was amazing to me when I took, when I went out to work with him as an assistant, how adaptable he had become, how different he had become. Obviously, you're not coaching the same way in 2004 as you were in 1986. And, you know, just the changes that he made in his approach to coaching. And, you know, when I took the job over, you know, one of the things I kept thinking to myself is, you know, I can't think about replacing a legend because, you know, those jobs are hard enough. And if you if you ever let that creep in, you're gonna you're just gonna be a mental mess. And you know, so I, one of the things that I and thank God for me, he was there. He was very helpful during the whole transition. Uh, he actually had an office down the hallway for me. And people would say Is that a little awkward. I said, "What are you kidding me?" I mean, he's one of my, you know, one of my closest friends, and someone that I've you know coached me and I've leaned on, and a huge influence in my coaching career. So, <clears throat> you know, obviously there was situations handling, you know, the highly player at BU and you know, how to handle guys that could be leaving sooner than later. And uh, it was just – I was just very fortunate to have him by my side during my five years at PU. And just going back and
3: dealing with college players after you've been on an NHL bench before in Colorado, uh, did that help you with a guy like Capo Kako? I mean, I watched him in the, in the World Championships, and that's kind of my litmus test as I try to determine whether a young player could step into the National Hockey League or not. And he dominated. And then with all these expectations, being second overall the New York uh, Rangers, original six team – did going back to college with younger uh, student-athletes help you with this young 18-, 19-year-old kid as he made this transition to the National Hockey League?
1: Yeah, when I took the job, a lot of people asked, what's the transition going to be like from college hockey to the NHL? And like you said, I was fortunate enough to coach in the NHL for one year in Colorado as an assistant, so without question, that it helped me. But, you know, I think college coaching is a great training ground for the National Hockey League. You know, the one thing about coaching college hockey, you know this, Anson Dean of Michigan State, I mean, you have to make players better. You can't trade them. You can't cut them. And it really forces you to coach, and not only you know from an X and an O standpoint, but you have to manage an age group between 18 and 22 that is so volatile. I mean, the player is going to change so so much from his freshman year to a sophomore year, from a sophomore year to junior year, and you know you've got to have the ability to adapt. And you know when you get to this level, I think when you and again the college approach, it's a much more personal approach because you know, not only are you coaching a player, well, you put the time and effort to get to know him during the recruiting process. You've been in the living room, you know, the family. So the relationships are obviously very big in college. And I think, you know, when you take that approach at the NHL level, I think first people are skeptical. I don't think guys believe that you actually, you know, that you can actually dig a little deeper and have relationships with your players and actually care about your players to the level that you do in college. And I think people are a little bit skeptical of that when you get to this level. But I think without question, especially with the direction our league is going, we're getting younger and younger. Uh, without question, those experiences have helped me deal with situations like Koppel was going through, and Heedle, and Howden, and Fox, and Lindgren, and you know guys like that, and Leah Sanderson. I mean, those situations, uh, when you coach college hockey, these guys are college hockey age, so it definitely helps you in those situations. Mm-hmm.
0: Just go to indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash match terms and conditions apply need to hire. You need indeed. We talk about Caco's second overall pick. We just watched this virtual NFL draft. It was, I think surprisingly compelling. I mean, part of that is obviously there are no other live sports. It was just different, but it was interesting. uh, And it, seems like we may be trending in that direction for the NHL draft. A little bit different than our previous draft. Certainly a little bit different than when you were drafted. 13th overall, 1984 draft. Take me back. What was draft day like to you? <laughs> uh, I was in
1: the Montreal Forum. I was, uh, you know, it was, it was funny because, you know, you go to the forum and there's no internet, right? There's no internet. Nobody, you know, you get the red line report. So, you know, played at the Kent School and, you know, you don't know anyone. Right now, everybody knows everybody. And I remember going up there with my parents and Jack Parker, actually, we was sitting in the Montreal Forum. And I was with Clark Donatelli, a teammate of mine at BU. He was getting drafted that year, too. And he and I were literally sitting in one section. And in the section next to us were all the major junior kids. It had to be 150 of them. So we looked like these two outcasters from Rhode Island. We were both from Rhode Island at the time. And I'll never forget when I got drafted 13th overall every kid next to me from the major junior looking at each other who the hell is this fat kid waddling down the stands to go put a North Star's jersey on the Kent school in Kent Connecticut not actually a hockey hotbed so it was a, it was incredible because it was uh you know obviously it, you know I remember during my senior year you know a lot of scouts at the games and people telling you got a chance to get drafted you know for in the first round and you try to put it on uh, you try to put it aside but even back then it does change your mindset a little bit and that's That's why, you know, I'm so sympathetic to these players in this day and age going through what they go through because the pressure is so real. I mean, the computer and the internet, it really put a lot of added pressure on 18-year-old kids and the expectations. A lot of things that are said and written about them uh, from people that really don't know a lot uh, affects these kids. And, uh, you know, right or wrong, they read it, they believe it, and it affects them. And I get a lot of respect for these kids and the way they handle it because they do a lot better job than I ever would in this day and age.
3: Well, you said everything I've been thinking my whole career, Coach, because uh, I was drafted in the 10th round, so you're right. They <laughs> didn't know the players out there. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> right? I you know what gone. I'm
1: talking <laughs> about, <it>. Anson. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but take us down the draft floor, because my draft year was actually in Montreal, too. I only stayed for a couple rounds, because I thought I was getting drafted after my freshman year at Michigan State, not after playing Tier 2 Junior B. So right. I never had the conversations of walking up and greeting the brass. What kind of conversations would you have with the young kids today getting drafted by New York Rangers as you walk them through the organization?
1: Well, you're talking about, number one, it's a journey, and the draft is, day is just the beginning of it. <clears throat> and, you know, there's so much focus on the draft. I think a lot of people think, oh, I, I made it, where at the end of the day, you, you, this is just beginning. There's an awful lot of work that needs to be put in uh, from that day forward. And obviously you want them to enjoy the day. But the reality of it is it doesn't matter where you've been drafted. It doesn't matter, you know, how high you get drafted. You're still going to make it. You're still going to perform. And to me, first and foremost, that's the message that needs to be delivered. At the appropriate time, you're not telling them that on the stage, that's for sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to me, it's, you can't lose sight of the fact because there's a lot of hoopla. A lot of people are writing things about you and talking about you. But, you know, there's nothing like pro hockey. And it, a lot of guys who have a lot of success at lower levels have a hard time making that adjustment to pro hockey and you know otherwise you just go to every league and take the highest scorers and make them you know let them continue to progress and draft them and put them in the international hockey that's not how it works so you know to me the number one thing that players have to realize it's just the beginning of the journey when what draft tables are on
0: yeah I I read a story about you that you had mentioned that you know all right I'm drafted 13th overall and now here comes the summer and I'm just going to work out play hockey but that your dad had a different plan
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah I was. Uh, we get home from the draft, and you know, I've, been, I've worked my whole life. My father was a cop. My mother drove a school bus, and I said to my father, "I think I'm this hotshot first round draft." But he said, "Yeah, this is great." He said, "Dad, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work out all summer. I'm not gonna get a job." He said, "Oh really?" He said, "This was on a honest guy was on a Sunday." He said, "I got your job at Coca Cola, you deliver soda all summer. Be there tomorrow morning at seven a.m." I said, "All right." So I deliver soda all summer. <laughs> I'll bring you right. He back. Wasn't impressed. He wasn't. He wasn't overly impressed. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. um,
0: <laughs> you know, go with that. Uh, the idea that you have to have this work ethic. Y- you know, being drafted is just the beginning of this journey. I mean, you have to have that, but you have to have a little bit of help, and you have to have a little bit of luck along the way. And you know, I think about your career. You're at Boston University. Uh, you're in the mix for to go to the play at the Olympics, and uh, you're diagnosed with hemophilia and a rare form. Um, can you take us through what that moment was like and then this is, you're a big athlete, you're young, I feel like you probably think you're indestructible, how do you deal with that?
1: It's it's really one of the reasons I got into coaching and you know, in 87, I've been invited to the Olympic festival. Like, you probably played no, you didn't. You were Canadian, so. Uh, I got invited to the U.S. Olympic Festival.
3: Hey, I'm I'm a dual citizen. I'm a dual citizen. All right. All
1: right. (laughs) And, you know, they invite 80 of the top Americans, and then they were going to whittle it down to 30, and then there was going to be a U.S. travel – you know, national team then the Olympics. And Dave Pearson was the head coach of the 88 Olympic team. I played for him in the 86 World Junior Team. And, you know, there was – I felt good about my chances. And, you know, three weeks before we were going there, I – Ended up playing a pickup basketball game, sprained my ankle, and uh, had all sorts of trouble and bleeding into my leg. And I got rushed to the hospital, and I had what they call compartment syndrome. And uh, I spent five weeks in the hospital. I uh, knew my career was over at the time. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty difficult uh, situation, obviously, because you think. And I had actually found out I was a hemophiliac the year before. Um, in 1986, uh, when we got knocked out of the national tournament, the North Stars called me the next day and wanted to sign me and but back then you couldn't sign an NHL contract and play in the Olympics and I really wanted to play in the Olympics but I was kind of deciding what should I do should I come back to BU or, or should I you know turn pro and the day after the season ended our doctor said to me David I want you to get your blood checked he said well every injury you've had here at BU has been has been blood related and uh I just think something's up and I almost didn't do it because I thought well I play hockey of course I get bruises and injuries and whatnot but I ended up going, and uh, when I went in to talk to Jack about what my next move was, and I pretty much decided I was going to go back to BU, but I went in to talk to Jack about what my next move was, and our doctor was standing there. And my test results had come back, and he told me that I was a hemophilia. And he's, so me not knowing what hemophilia was, I said, well, what do I do? What pill do I take? And he said, no, there's no pill. He said, you've got to quit playing." And you want to talk about an eye-opener? <laughs> it was uh, – But somehow, some way I've signed a bunch of waivers and my theory, my rationale was i have been playing hockey. I played football in high school, uh, played all these sports my whole life. And if, you know, I'm just going to get injured a little bit more and bruise a little bit longer and, you know, have to manage pain a little bit more, I'm going to keep playing. And uh, so I ended up playing my junior year at BU and ironically missed half the season with an internal thigh uh, bleed. Um, And so, you know, when I got that injury, I knew it was over and, uh, you know, I went through a difficult time. You know, you're 20 years old. You think you're going to, you know, play in the Olympics and have a, you know, long career in the National Hockey League, and uh, that didn't happen, so I was trying to find my way, and then <clears throat> I was able to come back briefly uh, because uh, they were doing a, an experimental drug that I could take prophylactically that would raise my raise my clotting level, and then when I came back, I was going to give myself two years. I was 25 at the time. I hadn't played in five years. I weighed 245 pounds and was not all muscle. So I had to get in great. I had to get in shape, hadn't skated in a long time. And, you know, when I had surgery on my leg back in 87, I had lost some movement in my right foot. And, you know, I wasn't the skater that I was before. it. So I gave myself two years. I didn't make it. And then I just got an incredible opportunity from Ben Smith, who recruited me to go to BU, uh, remained a longtime friend of mine. And, you know, he was looking for an assistant coach. And uh, that was my big, big break into coaching. But one of the main reasons I got into coaching because when I was going through a difficult time, uh, you know, Jack Parker and Ben Smith and my high school coach, Larry Piatelli and Peter Bragdon, they were so helpful in helping me manage through a very, very difficult time on top of my family, obviously. And I just thought to myself, you know, if I could ever have that opportunity to have that type of impact on somebody, what a cool experience that would be. And it just drew me to coaching.
3: What's kept that fire burning for you? Because being a coach is one of the hardest professions ever. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. I think it's even harder than being a player because sometimes with a player. You get traded, get sent down, but you can't get fired. But with a National Hockey League coach, you can get fired the drop of a hat. What is it that gets you out of bed every single day and and keeps that fire burning for Coach Quinn um, on a daily basis?
1: I'm very fortunate. I've been able to coach a lot of different levels. And people ask me, what's it like coaching the New York Rangers? And, you know, daily. There's not a moment, day that goes by. At some point, I go, I can't believe I'm coaching the bleep in New York Rangers, you know. (laughs) and But that being said, and I can honestly say this, it feels no different once I start coaching and I start doing what I'm supposed to do than it did when I was coaching at BU, than when I was an assistant in Colorado, head coach in the American League, U.S. National Program. I mean, really, it's just, you know, your responsibilities are the same. You just need to manage the people differently. And I tell everyone, I mean, the same things I was coaching in Ann Arbor, you know, begging our players to do certain things. I'm asking the NHL guys to do the same thing. Not only they don't make the mistakes as often. But it's just reiterating the basics of the game, and obviously there are other things structurally that we do way different than we do at lower levels. But it, there's really not, it's really not much different. It's just, you know, you just put yourself in a mindset as a coach that I have a responsibility to the players to make them the best player they need to be. And if you can do that with all your players and have that mindset and make everybody a little bit better, collectively you're going to have a much better hockey team. And uh, I, I guess that's what drives me.
0: And you have that experience dealing with adversity, as a player, making decisions, moving on. And now you get to do that as a head coach. You get to help other people deal with that. And, you know, go back to your time at BU, 2015 NCAA title game against Providence, up 3-2 in that game, third period. And then – Did we lose that game? I don't remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, I am bringing up all the happy memories right now. Uh, yeah, it's been a great interview. Yeah, first and last Zoom call between yeah. – No, no, no. And, Listen, you get that puck that uh, seemingly innocuously goes towards Matt O'Connor in goal. He thinks he's got it in his glove. It drops you between his legs, goes in, ties the game, and ultimately you lose that four to three. And now after the game, you have to deal with the team and you have to deal with Matt O'Connor. What do you talk about? How do you handle that situation?
1: Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps as you're talking about because really I remember walking off the bench and I'm thinking, what am I going to say to these kids? You know, you, you know, I'm not even thinking about the loss. Uh, you just, it was a truly a magical year in so many ways. I mean, you talk about a true team and players loving each other and feeling that feeling, it. and I'm sure you've been on those teams, that it factor, and everything was in place. And, you know, and all I could think about was poor Matt O'Connor. And, you know, he actually came out, he came out before I even get in there, and he was had his mask on, he was sobbing. And saying that I let you down I let you down and I just said there's not a go another goal in the world I'd rather have a net than you you know we wouldn't be here without you and it's just a really emotional time for everybody and uh you know it's just you're more worried about the players and the kids and how they're going to react and you know it, there's really not much you can say at that point to make anybody feeling better and uh but the way that the guys rallied around each other and rallied around Matt. What didn't surprise me because it was one of the reasons why we were able to go so far and came so close to winning a national championship. And, you know, to me, that's really the challenge of coaching. I mean, to me, that's put you in a situation where you better have your big boy boots on as a coach and, you know, know how to handle a situation like that. And I was very fortunate to have a great staff to help help us all through it all. And, uh, you know, it was uh, still a special, special night in a lot of ways and a special season. But, you know, uh, something that we all (laughs) will never forget, that's for sure.
3: Do you see any current players you're coaching right now as guys that might catch that coaching bud bug? I mean, I see some guys coaching the NHL now that I played with. A perfect example is Craig Berube, and I was like, I never expected Chief to be a coach ever. Right, right, Stanley <laughs> right. Cup winning coach. Uh, any guys that you can think of, like, off the top of your head that you're like,
1: mm, maybe this guy could coach. Yeah, but Ruby's highlight tape doesn't exactly scream. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. I know it. Although fear is a great motivating factor. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is true. And, uh, well, Ryan Strom brags to me all the time how he's going to, when he retires, he's going to go coach up in uh, Toronto and basically rule youth hockey in Toronto. So Stromer, uh, he's a hockey junkie. He loves hockey. I wouldn't be surprised if he'd gotten a coach and, uh Mika, well, Panera's flat out told me he's never coaching, so I don't have to worry about, <laughs> no one has to worry about that. Uh, I could see Mika doing it. Mika loves hockey. Uh, ironically, Tony D'Angelo, who he and I have got a little joke about coaching the Rangers. I always said to him, someone asked me, he said, if you could pick one player to coach the Rangers for a day, who would it be? I said, I'd love Tony D'Angelo to coach the Rangers for a day. And then after 24 hours, he can look at me and say, sorry, coach. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I did want to say to him, but someone has to act like you for those 24 hours, Tony, if you're going to coach the Rangers for 24 hours.
0: <laughs> well, that'll be the deal. He'll coach. You get to play the role of Tony D'Angelo. I'll
1: play the role of Tony yeah, Perfect.
0: <laughs> and Panarin's got other things after hockey. He's building birdhouses. He's painting garages. He's, doing <laughs> kicks. he's got a whole different thing going on. You know out. those
1: Russians, they train differently, right? He's building birdhouses and painting his walls, and he's becoming a better hockey player. I don't know how he's doing it, but he's doing it.
0: <laughs> well, listen, this has been great, and I you know, really appreciate the time. Uh, it's great to chat with you, and I know Anson and I uh, both look forward to seeing you behind the bench and seeing your players back on the ice. Uh, so thanks what so you're doing this, Coach.
1: All right, guys, thanks again. Looking forward to seeing you back to work again.
3: Thanks, Coach. Continue to stay safe, you and the family. Thanks,
1: Anton, you too. You too, Liam.